finally get there? Uh, 2019. 2019. So yep. it's still in there. It hasn't had time to go away yet. Hopefully. We'll Hopefully see. Not. You guys can be the judge in a minute. So I've invited Matt to share with us this morning and walk us with Jesus through this amazing story. So let me pray for him. Lord, thank you for Matt. Thank you for this story, that you are who you are and done the things you've done. Bless him, Jesus. Pour out your spirit on Matt this morning and meet us. In your name, Lord. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. For those I haven't met, my name is Matt, and my wife Bailey and I joined Trinity uh, last spring, and it's been such a joy to be a part of this community with you all. Now, I'm really excited to preach this morning, but I'm also a little nervous. And apparently Father Tim is too, because he's given me a pretty straightforward passage to preach from in the story of Zacchaeus. Uh, Bailey and I were talking, we figure if worst case scenario comes, we can all just sing the song and call it a day early. But in all seriousness, I graduated from Gordon-Conwell 18 months ago, but ironically, it took a seminary degree to help me realize I didn't want to do vocational ministry, so I haven't preached all that much. And because I don't preach very often, I want to keep things simple this morning. In this sermon series, we've been exploring how God manifests his glory, and all I want to do this morning is explore how God manifests his glory by transforming us with his love through the story of the blind beggar and Zacchaeus. Now, this sounds pretty simple, but as someone who spent my life around Christian culture, I'm amazed how easy it is to get distracted from that and forget that God's love is the foundation of his glory and the thing we're called to orient our lives around. I was walking with Father Tim a few weeks ago and he said something wild to me. He said, I don't know if I've ever preached a sermon solely on God's love. I find that in American Christianity, we are so good at talking about God's truth, but we often lose sight of the transformational impact of his love. And I fall into this trap all the time. I grew up in a church. I spent my summers at a fantastic Christian camp. I went to a Christian college, but I don't think I really understood God's love for me until I walked through a really dark season of my life after college. And while I no longer work in vocational ministry, I've spent seasons of my life at the camp I grew up at, working for Jennifer at Gordon College. And as I mentioned, I was a student on this campus. And in each of those communities, I'm always amazed how many of us haven't grasped that God really loves us and wants to transform our lives and our communities. Sure, we would all say we know this, but how many of us really feel this in the core of who we are? When you quiet your mind to make space to engage the Lord, do you hear his voice telling you he loves you, or do you hear something different? I'm amazed how easily I forget this and the other believers in my life who are in the same position. So with that in mind, let's spend some time this morning exploring the way God's love can transform the lives of the characters in these two stories. And with our time together, I wanna to do two things. Uh, I wanna walk through the story of Jesus' trip to Jericho, chapters 18 and 19 of Luke. And then I wanna talk about where each of us fits into the story and what God might have to say to us, depending on where we land. So let's talk about these two stories. The first story begins with Jesus approaching Jericho and a crowd waiting to greet him. Now, in ancient Near East culture, when a famous visitor was coming to town, Crowds would gather on the outskirts to town to welcome someone in. Now, as this welcoming party is forming, a blind beggar joins the crowd because he wants to meet Jesus. Now, we know from Mark's gospel, this beggar's name is Bartimaeus. And when he hears Jesus, he starts shouting, Jesus, Jesus, have mercy on me. Now, in the response to the commotion Bartimaeus is making, this crowd who wanted to give Jesus a great welcome starts to shout him down and tells him to be quiet. Now, in response to this, the desperate blind man, who no doubt had heard rumors of Jesus healing people, only shouts louder, starting to cause a commotion. Now, 
Jesus, recognized what is happening, stops in his tracks and commands the welcoming party to bring Bartimaeus to him. When he is brought before the Lord, Jesus asks him what he wants and he responds by saying, Lord, I want to see. Moved by compassion, Jesus restores the man's sight and tells him his faith has healed him. End part one. Now, this is quite the encounter. We have a man who has been shunned by the crowd who was brought into the presence of Jesus and healed. This is the first example of someone's life being transformed. Bartimaeus is healed, which will be a life-changing event for him. But Jesus also restores this man's dignity and his community. Here is a man who has just been told, shut up and go away, likely something he's heard many times over the course of his life. And Jesus brings him into the center of the narrative, gives him value in front of all of his community. Now, if you're standing in the crowd, this is likely a dicey social situation that would have ruffled your feathers. The crowd is trying to silence the outcast in their community, and Jesus commands them to bring the man forward, directly contradicting what they're saying. Rather than engaging his welcoming party, Jesus gives his attention towards the vulnerable individual in this story. I imagine the people in this crowd thinking, why is Jesus giving Bartimaeus the time of day and not recognizing our show of hospitality? But upon seeing the miracle, they're moved to worship God. It's hard to have any other response when you've just witnessed a miracle. Now, certainly this is an odd encounter that had the people on their heels, but nothing that throws off this entire trip to Jericho. Immediately following this, we dive right into the story of Zacchaeus. Now, there's a lot to unpack here, so hang in with me. I promise all of this context is worth it. Now, the story begins by telling us that Jesus had passed through the town. Simple detail we might want to cross over, but after greeting someone on their entry into the town, the expectation was that the individual would stay the night and the town would host a feast in the guest's honor. This short detail lets us know that Jesus has no intention to stay at Jericho. He's merely passing through, which is a direct rejection of the hospitality they just offer him. If we take another pulse of this crowd, it's one thing to make a quick stop on the way into town to heal this beggar. It's another thing entirely to ignore their show of hospitality outright and pass right through the town. As Tim shared last week, here's another example of Jesus messing with the culture of hospitality in order to make a point about his kingdom. From here, we dive right into the narrative of Zacchaeus. We're told he's a chief tax collector who's become very rich. Now, what exactly does this mean? Well, the Roman Empire occupied this part of the world by force at the time Jesus lived. To collect taxes, they picked someone from the town and asked them to collect a large percentage of income and deliver it to Caesar from the community. Now, you might be asking yourself, why on earth would someone take this job? Surely, this is a way to get you hated by all the people in your community. Well, you do it because the empire will let you charge whatever you want on top of the fee for Rome. So if Rome is charging 30%, you can take 60, 70, 80% and pocket the rest on your own. This is unfair and it's highly corrupt, but Zacchaeus would have had a legion of Roman soldiers to enforce his tax code and there's nothing anyone could do to stop him. This is how Zacchaeus has gotten wealthy, by exploiting his neighbors and using the threat of force to make it happen. I think this is a really important detail. If you grew up in the church, you've heard this story so many times and know Zacchaeus is an outcast, but remember why he's an outcast. It's because he's gotten fabulously wealthy off the backs of his neighbors by siding with their oppressors. So when the short Zacchaeus joins the crowd and tries to get a glimpse of Jesus, it shouldn't surprise any of us that the crowd does not want to help him get close to Jesus. 
Rather than ushering him to the front of the crowd, they tell him to bug off as well. Similar to what they've just done to Bartimaeus, the community is shutting him out of his opportunity to see Jesus. But Zacchaeus is persistent, and despite being ostracized by the crowd, he wants to see Jesus, so he runs down the road and climbs a sycamore fig tree. Now, it's interesting to note here that he climbs a fig tree, trees known in the ancient Near East world for having thick, clustered, large branches. Why is this detail important? It's important because Zacchaeus still wants his shot at seeing Jesus, but he's doing it in a tree he thinks he can hide in to remain out of sight from the crowd. He's already been humiliated once on this day and likely many times in his life, and he's trying to find a way to see Jesus without having to face rejection again. Now, but of course, you know what happens in this story next. Jesus walks right up to the tree, calls Zacchaeus by name, and tells him he wants to have a meal with him. Now, we might assume that Jesus knows Zacchaeus' name because he's the son of God, but many commentators believe that Jesus knows his name because he's heard the crowd ridiculing Jesus. He's sitting there hearing the noise, making fun of Zacchaeus. And I really like this thought. Here is Jesus, who has already heard the crowd rebuking Bartimaeus and intervened, and now he hears the crowd doing the same thing to Zacchaeus and sees another opportunity to transform someone else's life on the other end of the social spectrum. And what is Jesus doing here by choosing to approach Zacchaeus while the crowd is still with him? If Jesus wanted to, he could have waited until the crowd cleared to walk up to Jesus, but he doesn't do that. Instead, while this crowd is still with him, he walks right up to that tree and confronts Zacchaeus. By doing this, he's taking the hostility the crowd had directed on Zacchaeus onto himself, foreshadowing the same thing he'll do when he goes to the cross in just a few weeks. Now, this isn't just my conjecture. We see it in the text. Luke tells us that the people were displeased and they scoff at Jesus. If we take another pulse of this crowd, I imagine they're thinking to themselves, really, Zacchaeus? Do you know what he's done to us? This man has weaseled up to our oppressors to make himself wealthy off our backs and you're extending grace to him? We could tolerate you showing love to Bartimaeus, whom we pity, but then you ignore our hospitality and go engage the very person making our lives miserable? Jesus, I want no part of your kingdom, and they walk away. Now, that's the last we hear of these people in the story, but hold on to them, we'll come back to them in a minute. But meanwhile, Jesus, Zacchaeus is being transformed by his encounter with Jesus. We hear that with great excitement and joy, Zacchaeus takes Jesus to his home. Now, I think Zacchaeus knows full well how undeserving he is of this offer. He's used to being rejected. So when Zacchaeus shows, when Jesus shows love to him by offering to go to his home in front of the very people who have rejected him, there's no hesitation. And this is our second example of someone's life being transformed by God's love in this story. We see that God is not only looking to extend his love to the marginalized, but he's also offering it to the oppressor in this story. And one thing that's particularly unique about this story is we get to see what happens after Zacchaeus has his encounter with Jesus. We have lots of parables and stories in the gospel of people's encounter with Jesus, but rarely to get to see what happens next. Think the woman caught in adultery. I often wonder what happened to her the next day. We often don't get to see that detail, but here with Zacchaeus, we do get to see what happens. So what happens next? Zacchaeus is so floored by the radical act of love God showed him that inspires real change in his behavior. He makes this ridiculous pledge to give half of his possession to the poor and pay back four times what he took. The 
point here is that his life has been so transformed by this act of love from Christ that he can no longer be the same person. The story concludes with these words from Jesus. Salvation has come to this home today for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. Now salvation in the Greek conveys two meanings, eternity and wholeness. So yes, Zacchaeus is granted his salvation, but his life has also changed forever. This is a man whose life has been destroyed by greed and Christ takes that greed and transforms it into generosity. For the rest of his life, he'll get to experience the joy of generosity by giving back to his community. And this is the beauty of God's love, right? He can take the worst parts of who we are and transform it not only for our good, but for the good of those around us. And what's so profound about this encounter is that it not only impacts Zacchaeus, but it also impacts this whole community. If we consider the implications of Zacchaeus's pledge, it not only frees Zacchaeus, but it also opens up the door for the economic liberation of Jericho. The tax code has been changed, which dramatically alters the quality of life for the very people who just scoffed at Jesus and walked away. I think Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he chose to transform Zacchaeus's life. He's still offering glimmers of his kingdom to the people of Jericho, even after they've rejected him. And that's the third example of how someone's life can be transformed by God's love in this story. All right, deep breath, that's the context. Now, what the heck do we do with this? Well, I think it's really helpful with a familiar biblical story like this to try to think about who we are in the story and then unpack what God might be saying to us depending on where we land. And as I see it, there's three primary characters in this story. There's Bartimaeus, there's Zacchaeus, and then there's this crowd of people. And I imagine all of us can relate to at least one of them. So first there's Bartimaeus. This is a man with a physical disability that's made him useless to society and rendered him a social outcast. Can any of you relate to Bartimaeus? Do you have a disability that's made you feel like an outcast? What about a chronic illness or maybe an experience from your past that's made you feel like you don't belong? Maybe you've had seasons of your life where you haven't been able to contribute to society in ways that our culture is valued and it's left you feeling like an outcast. As I mentioned in my introduction, my first season out of college was really difficult. I faced some mental health challenges and had to spend a season of my life working through post-traumatic stress. And in this season, I could certainly relate to Bartimaeus. While many of my friends were off in cool cities working interesting jobs, I was mentally dejected and found myself struggling to get through the day, let alone be of some use to society. And in that season, the first one in my life where I wasn't able to produce in the way society expected me to, I was surrounded by a community of believers who pointed me towards Jesus and reminded me that God loved me even when I had nothing to offer them. Hearing God's voice tell me he loved me regardless of what I did when I was at my worst transformed my life and brought the gospel to life for me in a new way. If you can relate at all to Bartimaeus, how powerful is it to know this story is telling us that Jesus loves those whose society is deemed useless and offers healing in life? Now, second, there's Zacchaeus, the man who exploits his own community in order to get rich. Can any of you relate to Zacchaeus? I know this one is significantly more challenging to imagine ourselves as, but as a predominantly white community, I think this passage of scripture challenges us to consider if we've ever benefited from a system that advantages us over others. Just a few weeks ago, my family was in Charleston, South Carolina, and we toured the Middleton Plantation. Now, I was horrified by many things on this visit, but one thing in particular that struck me was the stunning wealth that one family was able to generate off the backs of slaves. 
Now, I was quick to judge Southern culture, but my father, who's sitting here today, quickly reminded me that many of the financial institutions in the Northeast that all of us still benefit from today leveraged the slave economy just as much as those plantations did in order to grow in the beginning. I'm also humbled by the fact that my family of Ukrainian immigrants was offered access to education, to loans, pathways to the middle class that many people of color were not that allowed my family to flourish in just two generations of being in this country. Now, I am personally quick to judge Zacchaeus, but if I'm honest with myself, I've indirectly benefited from a system that has exploited people of color more than once in my life. But maybe you're not ready to go that far. What if the way you're like Zacchaeus is that you have sin in your life you're not willing to confront because you love the benefit it brings? This too is Zacchaeus, right? Zacchaeus ultimately knows that, I think he ultimately knows that the tax code is wrong, but he loves being wealthy, so he can't let it go. And I can attest that in this way too, I am like Zacchaeus. I have lingering sins in my life that I know hurt those around me that I hold on to, ultimately because I like the reward they give me. And I'm curious, can any of you relate to that? But what is Christ's response to these types of sin in the story? God walks right up to Zacchaeus, calls him out of his hiding place and into the light and offers him grace. We don't get any details about what happened that night in Zacchaeus's home, but I imagine Jesus sat down at his table asked him phenomenal thought-provoking questions that led him to reflect on the events of his life and really made Zacchaeus feel known and loved in a way he had never experienced before. Now, let's be clear. The Lord doesn't excuse his behavior or our behavior. We have entire prophetic books of the Bible that show us God's wrath towards Israel for exploiting their neighbors. That said, God has the same desire to transform the life of Zacchaeus as he does to the blind beggar. And I don't know what this means in our culture, but one thing I know is this. God's glory and desire to transform lives is not reserved for people who are easy to love. In our culture of rage and anger that is ready to cancel people on a whim, we would all do well to look to the cross and lean into loving our enemy as ourself because Christ did that same thing for us. When I am really honest with myself, God's love for Zacchaeus is comforting for me because I know I need it just as badly as Zacchaeus did. Now, finally, there's the crowd in this story. And while I'm sure a lot of us can relate to Bartimaeus or Zacchaeus, I imagine most of us are actually a lot more like this crowd than we might think. And who is this crowd? They're the everyday religious people who wanted to engage with Jesus, but couldn't recognize their own need for God because they were too caught up in the cultural moment criticizing others. These aren't bad people. This is a crowd of people who went out to meet Jesus, who prepared to open their homes to Jesus, who were ready to provide him a great experience in their town, and who ultimately wanted to learn from him. I think I'm most like these people, and here's why. I try to imagine how I would act if I heard a spiritual giant of mine was coming to preach at Trinity on Sunday. I'd wanna make sure they had a great experience, so I'd likely offer to host them in my home and invite you all over for dinner to meet him. If they were several hours late because they stopped in Lynn to minister to refugees at the New American Center, I would likely be confused, but ultimately if I heard that's why they were late, I would think that was pretty cool. But if they blew off dinner altogether that we had spent a whole day preparing for, and they didn't show up on Sunday morning, and I heard it's because they were went to spend time with someone else who had gotten rich off of exploiting you, that would really upset me. 
my reaction to this definitely wouldn't be, wow, this person is amazing. I want to know more about the gospel they're preaching. No, I'd much like, more likely think to myself, bug off, then find as many ways as I could to criticize this person for their decisions and tear him down. Now, I might not say that out loud to any of you. That is certainly what I'd be thinking in my head. That's how these normal everyday church folks responded, and that's probably how I'd respond. But what's the danger with that reaction to these events? These people are so caught up in being justifiably offended that they completely miss what Jesus is doing in this example to see him reveal his glory. While they're chastising Jesus's radical compassion, Jesus has so impacted Zacchaeus's life that he's vowed to never exploit his community again and pay back the debt he owes. Like we said earlier, this would have had a radical economic impact on the community, blessing the very people who were angry at Jesus. And this is one of the things I love most about our God. He is extending grace and love to people who reject him or don't even realize he's serving them. Even when I reject God, he's still working to transform my life for his good. And one of my deep prayers for us as Trinity is that we would have eyes to see where where we are like this crowd of people. It is so easy to get caught up in our religious culture or in judging other people that we completely miss what God is doing. My read of this familiar story is that if Jesus came to the North Shore, I don't think he'd be hanging out at Gordon-Conwell. I don't think he'd be hanging out at Gordon College or Trinity North Shore. And if that's true, I wonder if he did show up, if I would miss him altogether because I'm so stuck in the status quo that I'm scared to associate with the very people he'd be spending his time with. Now, I don't want to project that on any of you, but it's certainly a fear I have. And so I'll close with two things. First, what's the most important takeaway from this story? Well, I think one of the primary ways God reveals his glory to us is by offering us his love regardless of our circumstances or the things we've done. If you're Bartimaeus, Zacchaeus, or the ordinary folks in this town, what I take from this story is that God sees you, he knows you, he loves you, and he's working for all of your good. Even if you don't see that or know that, God is actively working to an extended invitation to show you his love. And my prayer for each of us is that we would encounter the love of God and his glory in new and profound ways this year either for the first time or the thousandth time. God wants to transform the worst parts of your life for his good. For Zacchaeus, that's transforming his greed into generosity. I'm curious what that might be for you that God wants to go to work on. Now, second is this. The invitation to participate in God's work is before us. We ultimately get to show God's glory to those around us, just like he did for the characters in this story. I often get so distracted by the culture surrounding our faith that I forget the simple truth is we're called to be like Jesus. And what does being like Jesus look like as a result of this story? Well, I think it's really simple. Love your neighbor. Love those you look down upon. Love those who oppress or take advantage of you. And love the ordinary people in your life who are just along for the ride. Romans 5.8 says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Our lives as Christians are built on the unmerited grace of God And ultimately, our job as believers is to extend that love to others. And what can we learn from Jesus about what that love looks like? Well, he's not sitting there chastising these proud people for missing the point of his ministry or criticizing the life choices of Bartimaeus or Zacchaeus. He's providing Bartimaeus real dignity and value by giving him back his sight and restoring him to his place of value in the community. He's taking on Zacchaeus' sin and shame by having a meal and really engaging him on a heart level. 
And for those ordinary folks standing in the crowd who completely miss the whole point of what he's doing, he's working in ways they can't see to make their lives better because he loves them. Surely there is some application for all of us in the example Jesus sets for us here. And my prayer for us as a church is that we would be known as a community on the North Shore who shows the radical love of God to all we encounter in the ways that Jesus did in this story. Thank you so much. Let's stay with, um, with some of the points that Matt brought up in his wonderful sermon, and thank you for that sermon, Matt. Let's just close our eyes for a minute and pray. The words that stood out to me were outcast, outcast, 